Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to episode 96, listeners. I'm Aaron, alongside my good friend, the figure to my skater, Patrick. Topic! <laughs> nice. <laughs> to celebrate the upcoming 2018 Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. I, that I hope good. that I'm I like close. That. Okay, cool. We'll be spending the next two weeks covering films that are set during this exciting sporting event. We are both big, big fans of the Olympics in general and are excited to be discussing the recent fourth-wall-breaking mockumentary from director Craig Gillespie, I, Tanya. Patrick, I am definitely pumped about these Olympics. And before we get to our regular What We've Been Up To recommendations, I just wanted to ask you what your favorite Winter Olympic sports are. So what are you going to be setting your DVR to record? Well, I could be the kitschy guy and says, I'm totally going to do curling because it's so obtuse or whatever. But... Honestly, my favorite winter sports are the bobsled. I love both the two-man and four-man, so I'll probably be recording uh, those for the most part. And I'm not sure if Jamaica qualified again this year, but if they did, I'm going to be cheering them on. Uh, cool feel the rhythm. Feel the, yeah, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Everybody get up. It's bobsled time. But those are the two big ones. Uh, although I will probably be catching some of the uh, – the aerials, the skiing events are, are really a lot of fun too. I love the, I love the uh, the downhill and the slalom and things like that. But those are my my big four: the the alpine and the and the bobsleigh. So fast sports. Absolutely. Now, are you you're uh, you prefer the Winter Olympics, if I recall? I do, and it's partly because I think it levels the playing field. I'm a big fan of America. Obviously, I'm going to be rooting for my U.S. of A. But the thing I like about the Winter Games is. The U.S. doesn't dominate in a lot of stuff, so I get to see a lot more internationally flavored competition that uh, feels like I'm, you know, the U.S. is an actual underdog in a lot of ways. So I have that patriotic spirit from an underdog point of view. But the Winter Games, just in general, are more more appealing to me because they're sports that I don't get to see a lot of, and sports that I don't really have an interest in outside of the the event for two weeks every four years. So it'll be fun to to watch those. Yeah, me too. I I think it's interesting. I was looking at the odds uh, for medal counts, and not that I'm a gambler, or at least not that I'm a big gambler. But um, I, I noticed that Germany is far and away has the best odds to top the medal count. It's not us. We I think we come in second or third uh, in the rankings, and we're kind of in a group with like China and Russia there that are expected to do well. But yeah, I prefer the Winter Olympics as well. And all jokes aside, over the last, I'd say, eight years, so two Olympics, two Winter Olympics, I have really come to enjoy the heck out of curling. So I love me some curling, and I actually <laughs> will be paying attention to curling. So I don't, you know, it, it, we all make jokes about it. We all laugh about the sport, and we, like, you know, walk down the street like pretending we're sweeping. But it's fascinating to watch and it's just it's just intriguing and it's one of those unique things that you're never going to watch curling other than the olympics right it's like one of those right. things that you only see at this time like you i also love the fast stuff i love the bobsled i love the skiing events in particular the ones that have awesome jumps and um just spins and twists and things like that and i actually enjoy a lot of the figure skating i, I don't 
make it a point to watch the prelim stuff, but I'll definitely watch the the finals of figure skating competitions. I like the jumps more than I like the artistry. Something we right. talk about. Something yeah, that Tanya would appreciate. Yeah, there's a uh, there's definitely something to be said about um, bringing people together to watch events in sports that you would normally not watch on a regular basis. And the Olympics are two weeks out of the year where you bring people who either well you bring people who really love it together. And it's it's cool because we're uh, we're hosting the opening ceremonies this Friday with a bunch of people from our small group. And so it'll be neat to see who comes over because they're really jazzed about these next two weeks and who comes over because there's going to be free food. So uh, either way, we're going to have some good times with a a lot of fun people over. Yeah. I'm going to have to kind of pause a little bit on my movie watching. I I watch a lot of movies every week, but this will be a couple of weeks where, you know, I'll take, take the time that I can find to watch the Olympics each night and at least, at least get some overview of stuff. I, I probably will do a lot of fast forwarding. I also really like ice, not ice, um, speed skating. I've come to enjoy that quite a bit yeah. as well. So I guess, like you said, it's really just the, the sports that go fast. Mm-hmm. As they should. I mean, if you're on ice, you should be going fast. Ice and snow equal fast-paced sports. That's how it should be. And I can't skate for crap, so watching people skate is always appealing to me. Living vicariously. I like it. And in yeah. case you weren't aware, despite me living in Seattle for, I don't know, 10 of the last, 10, 12, 14 of the last 20 years, I still have only been skiing once in my life, and that was you and I's senior trip. Never yeah. have I gone. Never have I gone since I moved here. Winter I said Park, to myself Colorado. when I moved to Seattle, "This will be awesome because I have the mountains like right there beside me, and I'll go skiing all the time." <laughs> and I haven't gone once. That's if you can get through the misty rain of the Puget Sound, <laughs> I'm afraid I've missed my window because I'm old and brittle, and I will just break myself now. <laughs> well, then you can start up an underground poker ring and and write a book about it. You know, That's you... true. <laughs> that is true. Uh, maybe Jessica Chastain will help me. I I could handle that. I Aaron's game. That. I like it. I think it would make a great Ooh. book. Aaron's game. <laughs> Ooh, I like it too. I was so that was and because that was my only trip with you, I remember not having gear, and I wore an Arkansas Razorback starter jacket. That was my ah, ski yeah ski jacket. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was great. I, I, had, I think I, you did. Yeah, and I think I remember representing the uh, the Mighty Ducks at the time. I had a I had a jacket you, that I brought. That's I right. You were a huge Mighty Ducks fan. Yeah, of the Listen, movies, so, not necessarily hockey team. I, well, I know, but but you did you Eventually wore a lot team, of Anaheim yeah. gear. At, yeah, yeah, exactly. I did. I did. I did. Inspired. So by here we movies. are mentioning winter movies that we're not covering. Mighty Ducks, <laughs> Cool Runnings, Bad Reference, The Cutting Edge. <laughs> Don't tell me. We, do we have to wait another four years to do more Olympic Winter Olympic movies? This we is don't sad. have to. It would be kind of, you know, we could. If we don't do anything in the summer, we could just celebrate the Olympics in general. But I, I think I think it'd be less appropriate to cover a winter movie during the summer games. Or we we'll could just during, cover a – Do it during the World Cup. There we go. Yeah, just completely inappropriate. Let's do a boxing movie during the soccer – you know, the soccer championship or something. It would be fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. So normal what we've been up to stuff. What have you been watching lately? This week I got a chance to – dive into a documentary uh, i've been reading a book called the um the uh, a kim jong il production i'll probably talk more about that once i finish it but i wanted to get through it first and i was mentioning it to a coworker of mine who said well if you like that i've got a documentary for you to check out it's called under the sun and it was a documentary that came out in 2015 
and it was done by a Russian documentarian. I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but his whole design about his whole purpose behind this documentary was to really showcase the the world of North Korea from the vantage point of a family who was sending their daughter to I think it was called the Children's Union. I guess it was a equivalent to like a, a prep school to kind of get them ready to be to be adults. So it'd be kind of like a not really a military academy, but more of like a uh, just a private school, a preparatory school, that kind of thing. And so as he was going through it, as he was beginning to do this documentary, he had three weeks of of film of filming hours or of filming type things that he could do. And as he was going through this filming process, the North Korean government, the people that were allowing him to to do this, would continue to put more and more restrictions on what he could do. He couldn't walk around North Korea by himself, which is kind of understandable. I mean, if you're familiar with North Korea, you know there's a lot of restrictions put in place. But over the course of the first probably third of his documentary coverage, he was getting less and less creative freedom. The people that were walking with him, other, I guess, directors and producers or whatever from Korea were telling him less and less that, that he could do. They would vet his footage from, from each day, tell him what he could and couldn't put in. He started to realize that this whole experience was kind of more fascinating than the documentary that he was putting together. So what he did was, as he was filming, he would continue to let the cameras roll. And in each camera, he had an extra memory card. So at the end of the day, the guys that were with him that had to vet the footage, he would give them that, give them that first memory card. And then at the end of the filmmaking, he basically smuggled the other memory card out of the country and put together a documentary that showed off what he saw after the cameras rolled. So what you got was the documentary itself, but you also got a sort of behind the scenes thing. And what you would see were scenes of this family around a dinner table, for example, and they would talk about the parents would talk to their child about how you need to eat more kimchi. The kimchi is like the national food of the country, and it allows you to understand more. You know, it, it, it's a healthy food, and it helps you to. I don't know. I don't remember the details. But what was fascinating about it was once they finished, then we'd see the same scene done again from a different uh, angle. And then we'd see the director, the Korean director, say, okay, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to put more emphasis on saying this. I want you to say this instead of that. This line is too long. So what we, what we started seeing was more and more of these scenes that were repetitively done as if they were being acted out, which is what they were. And this became more of an exp expose on the propaganda of North Korea. And Aaron, it, it was fascinating. I mean, to watch this thing play out and to see how – these these guys living in this country were pretty much being told what they could say, when they could say it, and how they could say it in order to put up some this kind of uh, this kind of vision or this kind of image of what North Korea was like. Um, the book that I'm reading talks a little bit about that and how North Koreans understand that there's a world out there that they don't understand, that there's a world that they're not exposed to, but there's a sense of nationality and a sense of pride that comes from knowing. This is who we are, and we're okay with not really believing what the rest of the world is like. We're okay just sort of believing what our great leader uh, is is telling us. And so, watching this, it's just 
it's fascinating to me to see how it's like uh, was it adidas or i can't remember what it was that uh, andre agassi had back in the 90s images everything i mean this is like images everything on steroids so to watch it and to see not only the family going along with this but also other people that live in this country that are part were part of the documentary uh going along with it the the girl's mom she works in a cafeteria at a high school they actually moved her job for the documentary they had her placed in a soy milk soy something another kind of a higher uh, uh like a factory that has a lot more higher prestige to make her look a lot better and they staged this whole scene where uh her boss was coming down to talk to everyone in the assembly line, including her, about the fact that, um, you know, we have a chance to do a lot of great good with this factory. And to, it's just, it's unbelievable to see every opportunity that they made in this documentary to make North Korea look like something other than what it was. So when this doc got put together, there were two cuts. There was the North Korean approved, which was 60 minutes. And then there was the one that I watched, which was around 40 minutes longer. Well, when North Korea got a hold of it, when they found out that this is what happened, of course, they were irate. The family thought that they had been duped. They thought that they had been portrayed in a light that was not what they wanted. And it got a lot of interesting press. But watching it is just a fascinating look at how North Korea and the people of North Korea function and how they see themselves in relationship to their country. Everything is about the great leader. Everything is surrounding him. Um, this girl who was joining the union, she joined this children's union on the day of uh, Kim Jong-un's, is it Kim, Kim Il-jung's, I can't remember his name, on the day of his birth or something like that. And so it just everything is surrounding this trio of, of Kim's and, uh, and the documentary sort of exposes that to an extent. But it's really worth checking out. It's on Amazon right now. I think you can rent it for like a buck ninety nine. Um, but it's called it's called Under the Sun, and uh, and it's really really good. Wow, I would have never in a million years known this existed, or gone looking for this, or had any desire to even seek that out. So, really cool, obscure find. Kind of getting back to your name and being known as the documentary guy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's no, that's that's actually incredibly fascinating in the way it sounds, and I think it's it's something to check out for sure. Well, mine is different in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> I watched a movie just yesterday. Uh, we went to a screening for this upcoming animated film uh, called Peter Rabbit. Now, have you seen the previews for this, Patrick? I have not. Okay. Well, I will tell you that after seeing the previews for this film, I really just was not at all interested in it. Okay. It stars Dom Hall Gleason. Uh, it has Rose Byrne, and it's got an awesome cast as the bunny rabbits. <laughs> James Corden, uh, Mario Robbie is one of them. Daisy Ridley is one of them. I mean, it's it's phenomenal uh, list of names, right? But it's really just this story about Peter Rabbit. It's according to the trailer, it's Peter Rabbit, and he gets in a fight with Dom Hall Gleason, who's Mr. McGregor, and there's this, you know, fun, hectic, crazy, frantic battle between the two, the CGI rabbit and this human um, for supremacy of the garden, gar garden, garden. Well, my daughter really wanted to see this. Unfortunately, she was not able to go with us, but I had already RSVP. So I was like, all right, I'll go check it out. Went in with extremely low expectations. What I got though was 
a movie that made me laugh out loud as hard as any movie I can remember in years. Now, I've laughed out loud in the theater several times that I can remember in the last few years. But this one, I was gut laughing. I mean, I could not control the laughter coming out of me. And it was I, I was completely unexpected. Some of the jokes, they just, I guess, what I think it boils down to is this is a British film. It's written by Will Gluck, who also did, um, oh, goodness gracious. I don't remember the films he did, so I'm not going to try and list them off. You can look them up. But he's he's got this way of writing this that is just so smart. And it feels different than American animation. Now, I'm not talking about Pixar and Disney animation. Those two are incre incredibly different. The Pixar and the Disney animation have a different level to them. But for some reason, this British humor just works for me. It is so witty it is so sweet. It's the movie is short. It's to the point, and it's got just enough charm and depth to the characters without going overboard. I mean, it's not great. It's not Paddington Two. It's not a masterpiece, but it's got amazing animation, and frankly, it's just a lot of fun. The music used in it is pretty much perfect. All of the cues. It's got some kind of little nods at social commentary. And it, I just really, really enjoyed it. I, I was shocked that I had so much fun with it. And I would definitely recommend people take their kids to see this. I mean, it's so much better than anything that comes out that is like kind of like the Ferdinands of the world, right? Like Ferdinand got an Oscar nomination. And to me, this movie is, you know, way, 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 way better than something like Ferdinand. So I really enjoyed Peter Rabbit. And I think that it's well worth people packing up the family and going to see. I'm glad to hear that. I love movies. Uh, the fact that you recommend this, Paddington 2. I hope that this is a trend. I mean, I don't know that it is, but I hope that we see more movies like this that aren't just family friendly, but that are just all around good fun that can be widely appreciated. That movies don't have to be thinking man movies. They don't have to be dredged and, and deep and they don't have to be extremely one way or the other. That they can really just be enjoyable movie experiences, which should be what the movie theater experience is, is very enjoyable, uh, whether it's laughing or crying or whatever. But we, I, I think we need more movies like this that can be simple and can be digested in a way that just make you feel like, man, that was a really great way to spend my 10 to 12 or 50 or $60, depending on how many kids you have. <laughs> that uh, yeah, but, no kidding. But good stuff. That can man. escalate fast. It can. Well, the last thing I want to briefly just talk about is we just got done watching Super Bowl 52, both of us. And with the Super Bowl come lots of great commercials and for us in particular, new movie trailers, because that's what we do is movies. So several new ones dropped. I just want to kind of run through them and get a brief thoughts from each of us if we saw them. So uh, the one that I was looking forward to the most was Mission Impossible 6, Mission Impossible Fallout. I knew it was coming. I didn't get to see it in real time because I was coming home late from a board game event. I, first thing I did when I walked in my house was not turn on the Super Bowl. It was go find the Mission Impossible trailer. And boy, am I glad I did. So my first question is, did you get to see it yet? I got to see glimpses of it. There were times we were watching the Super Bowl with rabbit ears. So depending on if somebody was getting up to get something to eat, uh, we may or may not have seen all the trailers. So that was one that I got to see glimpses of. But what I saw was pretty fantastic. I was like... When do I get to see Henry Cavill's mustache? You know, that was kind of my big thing. 
Well, it makes an appearance and there's a brief <laughs> moment of him hand fighting against Tom Cruise and it's amazing. I everything about that trailer got me just more and more stoked for this film. If I could retroactively go back, Patrick, and redo my top five most anticipated films from our 2017 end of year episode, this would be in my top five. I have recently finished going through the the five Mission Impossible movies here in the last couple of weeks, and mm-hmm. it has been a joyous experience. I bought them for our account, so now you have Thank access you. to all Thank five. You. So I know that before Mission Impossible 6, I'm sure you'll do a, a rewatch of them all as well. Yes. And I, what I found is that I love all of them. Even Mission Impossible 2, which is to me the stinker of the bunch, by stinker, it's still better than most spy films, right? It, there's something about this series that just connects with me, and I love the direction Christopher McQuarrie, the director, has taken it. This trailer just looks like it's going to be more of the same, man. It's it's awesome. So yeah. when you get a chance to check it out. I will. And, you know, you, when you speak to the MI franchise, I've really – I feel like just like with the Fast and the Furious, kind of finding its legs with Fast Five, I feel like MI found its legs with the tailing part of three and then four uh, was really where I, I felt like it was like, okay, we know what we're going to be. And watching Ghost Protocol and then Rogue Nation really invigorated my love for the franchise because, like most people, thought the first one was fantastic, thought the second one was a serious deviation from what the first one was. And then we get the J.J. Abrams touch on MI3, which was kind of a callback to the first one with touches of the second one. But then we get into 4 and 5, and hopefully 6 will be just more of the same, where we're celebrating crazy technology and we're celebrating radical stunts and we're celebrating just big big espionage ideas that are what make this franchise so great and i think in a lot of ways it 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 pairs well with the fast and the furious franchise because it doesn't apologize for what it's trying to be there's nothing about it that says we want to be x and we're really kind of executing this by being y no it's mission impossible it's just what it says. I mean, none of this, none of this can actually happen. This technology, you sort of go, that's really great technology. It doesn't exist, but I love the fact that it's in there because it just kind of suspends my disbelief, which makes me love to suspend the disbelief for the rest of the movie. So I'm excited for it as well. I'll check out the trailer once we finish recording tonight. Sweet. Well, you mentioned the, the cool technology in this one. Well, there was another trailer that had some cool technology, and it was a teaser, and that is the first look at solo a star wars story hype for this one for me is pretty low i will admit and i will tell you that the trailer did not get me going there 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 are some cool images okay this is like a fast teaser though i mean it is like throw a bunch of stuff at you in a frantic nature um there's a really cool looking futuristic train that appears to have like an up and a below like it's got a part that's above and below the track for people Mm -hmm. i don't know whatever it looks really awesome new droids things like that i think what excites me most about these new star wars film in a lot films in a lot of ways at least these these off branch ones that they're gonna do off main uh movies anthologies anthology movies that's a good yeah anthologies those is getting to see some new tech and things like that that's input into them because the story just doesn't I, I don't know. I'm not excited. I know that a lot of reshot, reshoots were done by Ron Howard when he came to take over the project. It just didn't get me. What did you think of this one? Well, the subject matter doesn't excite me. And I go back to a conversation I had with my with my cube mate, and he made a good point. He said, look, when you when you think about Han Solo as a character, 
his arc, his growth happened during the middle three movies. And so what you're essentially potentially getting is just a douchebag. I mean, in in terms of the story, because you're not getting you're not getting growth. I mean, if you're talking about this is who Han Solo was before we get to meet him in the middle three films, then he's going to be a jerk because that's who he was when we meet him in episode four. Now, that being said, I trust the vision of any director. Ron Howard's a fantastic director. And my hope is that you have a movie that does something that I've wanted from these anthology movies, which is give me something different, tell a different story. I was incredibly surprised at Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi because I felt like I got that within the confines of our big nine, you know, our main our main story. And so my hope is that Solo becomes something of a – it's not necessarily a here's who he was before, but really here's a story about Han Solo that you haven't heard before and not necessarily trying to tie into who we know him as now. That's the danger when you start looking at characters – that we've already been familiar with and telling their before story because we already have an idea of who they might be. So our expectations are already going to be a little bit uh, constrained because of the fact that we have an idea of, of who Han Solo is, who Boba Fett is, who, who the rebels were during the events of rogue one. And so it's, it's high risk, but it could also be high reward. I don't, I'm like you, I, I don't really have a high expectations for this. It's not one of my anticipated movies of the first half of the year. In fact, I was a little skeptical because we're four months into this Disney big franchise. They're the ones that would be pushing all this marketing. And this is the first time we're getting to see this with a full trailer coming tomorrow. That's, that's kind of scary for me in terms of yeah. what the movie can be. I think it is for me too. And I'm glad you mentioned the full trailers coming tomorrow. So by the time you're listening to those listeners, you will be able to see the whole trailer and maybe everything we have just said has been completely like obliterated and it's amazing. And it gives us everything we need. We were just speaking briefly about the teaser. Um, another teaser we got was for skyscraper. Did you catch that one? I did not catch that one. Okay. This is the rock jumping across. Oh yeah. He's got the mechanical leg. Is that right? Yes, he's a mechanical yeah. leg, and he runs across a crane and leaps towards a skyscraper. Okay. I didn't get a lot from the plot. I thought at first maybe it was going to be like a remake of The Towering Inferno, but it appears there might be some bad guys involved instead of, you know, just tragic circumstances. And so I, I don't know what's going on with this movie. It, it's just a big—I guess we've honestly reached that statute of limitations on don't do any burning tower towering buildings— falling down uh, i mean for a long time we couldn't do that because right. of 9 11 uh, but it seems this one is going to break that trend so it's the rock it's going to be action crazy over the top probably mildly entertaining in some ways and i guess whatever I, Sounds, it didn't didn't move the needle for me well yeah it feels a little bit like san andreas the way you're describing it and a little bit that i got that it's big fun action with the rock which probably isn't enough to put me in uh, a movie seat because my money needs to go elsewhere but definitely one worth renting when it comes out on dvd or something like that yeah i said that about geostorm too and then i watched it at home and wish i would have saved my hour and a half okay so uh two more jurassic world kingdom fallen kingdom got its second trailer for me this was about a billion times better than the first trailer. The first trailer for this movie had me really worried. It did not feel like a J.A. Bayon... Bayon but say his last name for me. Bayana? Banaya. 
Banaya? Banana. Banana. Bologna? Bologna? Bayona. I don't Bayona. Know. I think it's Bayona. Um, I did not see his work in the first trailer at all. It just looked like a crazy over-the-top action sequence movie. Um, this one had some of that horror feel that he brings to everything he does, and it really got me a little more excited. Now, I'll admit, this is not a franchise that I even care that much about existing. It's fun. It was cool. And I'll forget about it five minutes afterwards. That's what I'm kind of thinking will probably happen with this one too. But at least it made me more anxious to, or more excited about seeing it when it does come around. Right. Jurassic world for me was one of those franchises that like you, I saw the teaser for it, the first one. And I was like, didn't you learn from 1993? Don't make dinosaurs. Don't put them in a park with people. Come on, fix, fix your, fix your issues here, guys. But as the trailers got closer, I began to get more excited, and it became one of my favorites of the year. Um, especially when I, what, what I, what I felt like uh, Colin Trevorrow was doing with that, and kind of making, um, kind of a, kind of a forward thinking. Here's kind of what people want. The, that, anyway, that's a different discussion. I was impressed with it more than I thought I was. So my hope is that Fallen Kingdom will be an extension of that. I hope that it's not a letdown like the Lost World was to my Jurassic Park experience. Um, but like you, I don't know that it's a necessary franchise that needs to be continued. I think I was fine with Jurassic World, you know, capping it off. I don't necessarily think we needed a, a sequel, but you know, it is what it is and it's coming and we'll see it and we'll probably cover it. So there it is. Yeah. It gives us a reason to talk about Jurassic World too. And, and, it's, and it's got Ian, Ian, Ian Malcolm. Uh, yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah. Well, Bayona is, is a great director and we've loved all his work, so I mean, at least he has that going for it. Sure. All right. Last one is the shocker of the night, which was that God particle no longer is God particle. The movie that both of us have had on our most anticipated list for two years running <laughs> ever since 10 Cloverfield was lane lane came out. And this movie was announced to be the third Cloverfield film. You and I have been tracking this one closely. We knew some of the casting. We knew it was going to be kind of built around a space station and some craziness. And we knew it was going to loosely tie into the Cloverfield verse. That apparently is not quite accurate. It is going to be very much a tie in, maybe even a prequel. Who knows what the heck this is? Did you watch the trailer? I did. And this was, this was, inter- this was interesting. Scott Kelly, one of our listeners and a contributor to the show. He's been on, uh, I think once or at least once or twice, he, he sent a message out saying red alert <laughs> the cloverville sequel that's been anticipated is gonna re- gonna drop right after the super bowl on netflix and i'm like what and i i guess i haven't been following the the news closely enough to find out that paramount sold the movie to netflix or at least it was in talks to sell it to them so when i read that i was like oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh then i saw the teaser like three minutes later with coming very soon at the end and the Netflix logo sitting right above it. And I was like, Oh my word, what is happening? And so of course you and I are talking about it offline and like, what's going on here. (laughs) I had mixed reviews. I had mixed reactions because when you anticipate a movie and you find out that it's coming like in 45 minutes to your television set, your immediate reaction should be, Oh my gosh, I'm excited. But two things were going through my mind. One, well, three things. One, 
I've still got This Is Us to watch because that's supposed to be amazing. Also, we've got to record a podcast, so that's also amazing and kind of distracting. So I won't be able to watch this tonight. But the third thing is I wanted to see this in the movie theater. This is a movie theater movie. And with all the talk about the delays and intermixed with the viral marketing and the mystery surrounding it, it's really difficult for me to get my head around, was this all planned? Was it strategic or was this just the result of lots of bad stuff going on surrounding this movie? Having said that, watching the teaser for it, it felt very alien-esque. There's a lot of really, really interesting stuff going on in this trailer. And I'm definitely not going to try to watch it tonight because it'll be late by the time we get done. But I want to watch it soon. Um, it's it's intriguing. The, the, the trailer is very intriguing. And I'm excited to see it. Not excited about the format, though. Well, I'm with you. I can't agree more. I, I too, it's I wanted to see in a theater. Anytime that these big sci-fi type productions with great visuals come straight to Netflix, Mute by Duncan Jones is another example. Both of these now here in February coming out. I'm a little sad. My first reaction was disappointment because I wanted to see it in the movie theater. Um, it was also coming out. For my birthday weekend, that was like going to be like my, over my birthday, the episode we covered, and I was just pumped at the timing, and uh, it's it, it kind of threw me for a loop. And you pack on top of that the fact that it was sold to Netflix just a few weeks after they started talking about that deal, and after they moved it from its February release date to its April release date. This movie's been moved several times. It's had noted production issues, and here we go with Netflix, like, buying it and swooping in and dropping it right after the Super Bowl with zero marketing. Now, maybe it's marketing genius, Patrick, and this movie is going to be amazing, and that's why they did it. But part of me is so nervous that they're doing this to capitalize on the audience and the chance to, to get the marketing so hot right now because they don't expect it to, to succeed. And, and why sell it if you're Paramount to Netflix unless if you didn't believe that it was worthy of, like, bringing people into the theaters. So all of those things have me a little concerned. I, I've, I've read very few reviews or things about it, but I did read one where someone who had seen an early test screening of this back in September had said it was, it was kind of like a partial, it was like, it was like a B version of life, which was a B version of alien. And that doesn't necessarily get me too excited. So, I mean, yeah. we liked life, good enough but it was on the brink there and ah we'll see i am gonna stay up and watch it because it's not as late for me uh and i frankly just i gotta get to this one so we shall see and hopefully we will be pleasantly surprised because we both really want to be we love jj abrams and we love this universe and it should be noted uh that and you mentioned this on social media that in our original schedule before this thing got moved and then before it got dropped tonight this was the movie we were going to cover tonight. This was our, this episode was going to be the, or was it this episode or next week's episode? No, come to find out, I had to do a little research and, and you actually had put it in at the wrong date. Uh, the, the original release date was February 24th. So I was oh. wrong when I posted that. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind then. I, I know. I thought it. it was pretty cool at first. I got all excited. And I was like, oh, maybe they did it on purpose and it was all a misdirection play. And I don't know. No. I it is pretty, cool. it is pretty cool though. I mean, considering 10 Cloverfield Lane debuted at the Super Bowl last year, and that's when we got really hyped about it because that little teaser played. Mm -hmm. 
now to have this happen again at the timing or two years ago, sorry, the timing is, is interesting and, and fun to think about. I don't know, man, I'm crossing my fingers, I guess. Okay. With that out of the way, a couple quick announcements and then we'll get to I, Tanya. Voting through February 10th is going on right now for our patrons. Our February donor pick episode is out there ready to be chosen. We are covering a romantic comedy. There's five choices. I'm not going to list them. You can find them online. Go to patreon.com slash film to get votes. Uh, $1 a month. You can, you can subscribe for that little and you will get a vote and you'll be able to participate in that. $2 a month or more and you'll get access to all of our bonus content, which we're trying to be more intentional about and trying to get something out there at least once every month. Um, there's some good trivia episodes and some cool top fives. We recently did our top five favorite movie aliens and they are not going to be what you think they are. Some of them will, but some of them, like Patrick's, are weird and will shock you. <laughs> <clears throat> and none of ours Mine are the are same. perfectly normal. Yeah. And none, none, of, are, none of them are the same. So, yeah, if there's a hook for that episode, it's that we went through 10 aliens and none of us, neither of us chose the same alien. So it's fun. Check it out. Yeah. Uh, last is our nomination period is currently still going for our 2018 Feelers Choice Awards. Again, this is a community voted and nominated awards that we started last year. Our Facebook group, which is growing like wildfire recently, and that is awesome. We love it. They're the ones that are uh, responsible for putting in their nominations. And then ultimately, they will also be responsible for voting in these awards. So we want you to come join that Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash groups slash guess what? Feel and film. That's right. Facebook.com slash groups slash feel and film. Join it. The pinned post uh, will link you to where you can make your own nominations. We're going to leave those up for about a week. Maybe a little closer to two weeks, depending on how tight the schedule gets, but at least a week. Uh, and then we'll be pulling those down, doing a bunch of data crunching and creating our ballot for our 2018 Feelers Choice Awards. So please come participate in that. Okay, now to this week's review. We are here to talk about I, Tonya, the movie about Tonya Harding and her life and her attack on Nancy Kerrigan, or I'm sorry, the attack Nancy Kerrigan that also was sort of kind of tied to her um I'm gonna say that we are going to talk about this in full depth so there will be spoilers please turn away and go check that movie out if you have not seen it already it is in theaters and I think it's gotten a pretty much wide release at this point I know it's been expanding every week in the last few Patrick this movie kicks off with a little bit of a title card and a it says, based on irony-free, wildly contradictory, totally true interviews with Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli. With that in mind, what are your opening thoughts about I, Tanya? Well, like you, I mean, you and I are the same age, essentially. I'm a little bit older than you, but not by much. And we lived in a, in a world, in a world, with... There were four events that I think took place in, during our, I guess, adolescent teenage years that I, I clearly remember: uh, the O.J. Simpson verdict, the Challenger explosion, the um, the the Waco massacre with David Koresh, and the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding. Uh, rivalry leading up to the, to the incident. Those were the four big things that I remember growing up with in my high school uh, years and, and being very 
very close to those things in terms of just kind of reading the news and finding out about it and, and kind of following the news cycle. So when this movie came out, I was really excited because I'm a big fan of Margot Robbie. I think I think she's a fantastic actress, and the things I've seen her in, I've been really impressed. So to see this and to have a, another stab at a, a biopic uh, or another shot at a biopic, I wasn't trying to be plenty there because there was no stabbing, there was beatings. But anyway, I the, you know the film opens up with that inner title card, and I got this idea of what the attitude of the film was going to be. And I wasn't really excited about it. And so the word that kind of summed up for me, my one word takeaway for this was unbelievable. I remember talking to you watching it and I was like, I think I'm going to make it the word ridiculous because this is it's, it's bonkers. And, and so I, I scaled back and I decided to go with unbelievable because as you and I have talked about with biopics, I guess this is more of a mockumentary. So it's essentially a biopic biopics have this, maybe this unofficial responsibility to their audience to be somewhat accurate, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think biopics are meant to entertain primarily and to educate as sort of a sidebar. What I think this movie does was go to the extreme of the former and completely kind of laugh in the face of the latter. Like I think it said, here were the events that took place. Now let's just exploit that. And that's really that's really what I felt like this movie was, was was an exploitative adventure into the life of Tanya Harding. Um, it didn't seem like it wanted to take it so seriously. It used the subject matter to entertain uh, first and foremost. And I don't think it should apologize for that. But because it's exploitative, I, I think the over-the-top nature of the film really hindered my enjoyment of it. Like at some point I was like, am I supposed to be laughing or feeling sorry for these people? Because these are real people. It's not like we're creating fi- you know, fictitious characters that we're, we're telling a story about. These are real people and this is really what happened to them. And in most biopics, whether they portray a character in a fully honest or light or not, there's at least some level of empathy or sympathy that I have. And I walked away from this movie going – man, that was just weird to me. And I felt like the filmmakers were basically just laughing at the whole emphasis, the whole thing about Tanya Harding, like Tanya Harding's whole life and this whole event that surrounding surrounded her as a figure skater and leading up to that incident. I felt like it was just one big laugh track for the filmmakers. And I don't think I enjoyed that very much. Well, that's a totally fair response, I feel. Um, I can understand completely why you would react that way. Uh, I've seen it twice. The first time, it went a little better for me than the second time. But this most recent viewing, I came away with the word irresponsible. And I mean that in several different ways. Um, uh, the reason that the way that I felt about this movie was I can under I can appreciate a dark comedy. I can appreciate a tragedy. But the marriage of the two in this film did not always work for me. It's a movie that asks us to understand Tanya rather than like her. And this style of film I'm used to bringing my expectations into it. I'm used to it trying to give me some empathy for the character. And I, I didn't always find it easy to do that for Tanya. 
despite feeling like I probably should. I really enjoy it for a while, but I think that the constant abuse that we see and we hear, and I mean constant, like it is non-stop for this whole movie, it wore me down. Now, is that an accurate representation of Tanya's life? Probably. Does it make it an entertaining, watchable movie? Problematic. It becomes really tough, and about a third of the way in the movie, I feel like it kind of totally shifts gears, and I want to talk about that. Um, and, it, and it just takes me to a weird place. It is definitely clever. It is sarcastic. It is wonderfully acted. Um, but I almost felt like the movie fell in love with Tanya too much. And in the end, I feel like it was pardoning her for her irresponsible behavior. And in a lot of ways, her willful waste of generational level talent. I also will admit that this second viewing came in between me watching a documentary called The Price of Glory, which is an ESPN 30 for 30 by director Nanette Burstein. And the reason that this has impacted me so much is because that film definitely takes a balanced approach in evaluating Tanya and in evaluating its effect on Nancy Kerrigan, who was also part of this, a big part of this story. And I did not feel like Nancy Kerrigan was even present in I, Tanya. Now it's not about her and we'll get there to talk about that some, but for me, that was uh, a miss. And I felt like a little bit irresponsible and not giving us enough of, uh, I thought that was a major piece of the story that was missing and didn't really allow me to get to the place the movie wanted me to go. So irresponsible for me unbelievable for you hmm <laughs> well i guess we'll see what what else we think um you know you mentioned the word exploitative and i actually had a note here to ask you a question and you've already answered it and that question was the idea of using humor and the style of humor used in this movie to depict abuse yeah and was that exploitative or was it effective for you well if if you if you try to use the word effective, it depends on what the effect is. If the effect is to make me laugh and to make me kind of absorb that in a little bit easier way to digest that a little bit easier, then it wasn't effective because that's what I think is different from this movie as opposed to something like Dr. Strangelove that uses satire to make a point. And I feel like what I, Tanya does is it uses a real thing and a serious thing, which is physical abuse, to make a point. And when you do it so repetitively, you almost give me to a place of numbness. And so at some point by the middle of the film, when she continues to take uh, Jeff back for whatever reason, I'm like, I don't feel sorry for you at this point because you're asking for it. I mean, the amount of abuse that we see on screen, again, whether it's true or not remains to be seen. I mean, we weren't there. But if the film is telling us this is how much it happened – all the time, all the time, all the time. And then you have a woman who continues to go back because of X, Y, and Z. I, I don't doubt the reality of that. I've known from not personal experience, but I've known from other, from indirect other stories from, from women who have gone back because they feel like they can't get out of relationships. So I'm not discounting that at all. I don't want that to, to be what's insinuated. I don't think it's easy to leave 
an abusive relationship. What I think the film fails to do is to create that sense of empathy to feel because I never felt like she couldn't get out. Like she is a strong character. Tanya is a strong woman physically, emotionally, mentally. And I felt like what, what, what did it for me was the fact that during those moments where she was saying breaking the fourth wall and he hit me constantly, she was punching him back, kicking him right in the, in the junk. And it's not like she was getting just lambasted, not being able to fight back. She was equally as, as violent. So I don't, I never saw a sense of a victim here. I saw someone who was just being stupid in terms of being in a relationship again. Well, no, 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 you don't have to explain to me. I completely agree. Okay. I, I agree, and I'm glad that you said it all first. <laughs> Great, yeah, I'm the bad guy, right? <laughs> no, no, I, th- I think you did it really well. I think you explained it very well. I agree, because I thought that she was fighting back in so many ways, and she was abusive as well. And yes, she is a product of her upbringing. This, this is true, and that's what you're saying. We know that. But... The film doesn't give us that feeling and that sense of a woman who wants her life to change. We don't see a sense of Tanya ever believing that, oh, you know what? This is not how I want my life to go. I want my life to be like that. No, all we ever see Tanya do is say, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Well, this happened, but it wasn't my fault. Now, part of that, again, is is her her psyche and the way that she has been created as a human, the way that she has grown into this personality is a product of her upbringing and her relationships and all the stuff that she's gone through. That being said, you're an adult and at some point you have to make those choices. And had the movie shown me a Tanya that wanted to get out of this relationship and that wanted to get out of these situations and just couldn't, then I'm going to have empathy. But I really felt so much like she needed this just as much as Jeff did. This was a, a relationship she wanted. Right. There's this, there's this, the sense of unbelievableness comes from a place where uh, several years ago, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who had eventually joined the FBI and, and had signed up with the behavioral analyst unit, the BAU. And at the time when I was talking to her, I was watching a lot of Criminal Minds, the television show on CBS that centers around the BAU. And I said, okay, I'm going to be one of the many people that probably ask you this, but are the stories in Criminal Minds like based on real cases? And she's like, oh, no, not at all. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right because they're completely just crazy, right? And she goes, no, some of the stories that we have that actually happen are even crazier than that. If we put those things on television, you would think they were fake. She said the stories that you see on wow. the, the stories that you see on Criminal Minds. Now this is at the time. Now they may have gotten more crazy since since I've stopped watching it. But at the time, she said the 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 episodes that you see and the cases that you see are toned down. They might be inspired by an event, but they are incredibly toned down because there is some nutso stuff that happens in this world. So I I was thinking about that as I was watching this, and I'm going, maybe all of this abuse really did happen. Maybe she was constantly being beaten. But the fact is, when you're watching a movie, there's something interesting about our mindset where if we're just when we're watching something that we know is entertaining us, we expect to have limits so that we can process things. And that's why you have story beats. That's why you have moments of silence. That's why you have musical interludes and things like that, because you want to give your audience a chance to digest what they've just seen. What I felt like we saw was more of that mockumentary 
style of like, let's just film these guys just going to town on each other to make a point. And what you do is you lose me as an audience member because you don't give me time to digest that. All I see is just a series of beatings. I see a series of just just foul language talk back to each other where it's just like I have I have no time to digest who I'm supposed to be rooting for. Because if we're every movie has a protagonist and an antagonist, whether it's clear or not, this one didn't re- I don't feel like we had that. I don't feel like I saw Tanya as someone I could feel sorry for or someone I could celebrate or cheer for or someone I could even hate. There was like this weird ambiguous middle ground where I was like, I don't know whether I'm supposed to hate you or whether I'm supposed to feel sorry for you or whether I'm supposed to be like rooting for you. And there were so many moments of the movie where I was going, you're doing this now, but then two minutes later you do this. And I'm like, pick one and stay with it. Because other than, uh, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not doing that, you're losing me. This is where, a couple things I feel one is that in the price of glory, there is a, a scene where Tanya has just come out of the nationals or, or one of the events and she's telling her mom. And I think she gets like fourth or something and she's excited and her mom is lambasting her. She's in a hotel and she's on the phone and she's being filmed and she is in tears. She is crying. She is devastated. You can, you can't hear her mom. But you know that her, what her mom is saying on the other end of the phone, because Tanya's kind of repeating, and you can tell from what she's saying, and you can tell how broken she is over that relationship, how absolutely destroyed she is. That same scene is kind of played in the movie, only they're at a dinner table, and it's just so different. And for me, I just didn't get that, and so I didn't think it was as effective, because that constant abuse is happening. Tanya herself has even said there's only a couple things about the movie that it got wrong, and one of them, she specifically said, quote, trust me, I don't say the F word 120 times a day. That might come out once in a while when something really bad happens or I hurt myself. I mean, the movie portrayed me as this person who cusses every 10 seconds, and I don't swear like that. She says when she went to the judges, you know, when she kind of cusses at the judges, she said, no, I did not go to the judges on the ice and talk to them like that in front of everyone. When I spoke to the judges, they were in the back hallway room telling me you need to have better dresses. And I said, well, if you can find me $5,000 to make me a dress, then I'll wear it and I won't have to serve, save, sew these anymore. And she said, I said, get out of my face. But in the movie, that's ramped up for effect, right? And it, and it treat, and again, it makes her into more of a villain. And so I just don't feel like the movie can, makes up its mind. At, at times, things like that make me feel like you're so out of line. Like, I don't feel for you. You deserve this reaction from the judges and you deserve this reaction from some of the skating world because you're not even trying to conform to what the sport is about. And then at other times, it wants me to feel empathy for her because she's getting herself beaten. And it's like, I can't. I can't process that back and forth. And I had a real hard time with that. Yeah. I mean, and if it was something that the filmmakers were trying to do to be effective was to create that kind of dissonance, I don't know that it was effective at all. And it's not discounting the performances because I think, I think Margot Robbie does a fantastic job as, as Tanya Harding, not necessarily in the portrayal of this actual person, but in portraying a sense of, of strength, because that's one thing that we knew about Tanya Harding was how strong she was. Probably, I don't, maybe mentally, physically strong for sure, but there were moments of mental toughness that she had, and I felt in a lot of ways that's what defined her. The Price of Gold really, it it, it brings that to light. Glory, 
My bad. I think I said the price of gold. It's the price of glory. I think it's the price of gold. Is it? Yeah, I think it is. In any case, it's the price of something. Uh, but there was a price. And, you know, she paid it. But the fact is, in both, we do get an honest depiction of her strength. And I think that's to the filmmaker's credit, because that's something that I think stood out about her. And in a lot of ways, it's what created separation for her from the skating world. Because she was not someone who was the prima ballerina, the one who came from money, the one who picked the the classical music. I think I remember a story. I don't think it was in the movie, but I think I remember uh, at one point she was asked to pick something more classical for her short form or long form uh, and or long program or short program. And she said she ended up picking like the Jurassic Park theme. So this gives you an idea of what her understanding of what's being asked for. So in that regard, I saw some of that in Itanya. The fact that she was like, I can't be anything other than who I am because that makes me less of who I am if I try to be someone different. And being someone different means I can't be the best skater I can be because apparently that's not what wins medals is being the best. It means being the best and something else that I just can't aspire to. Absolutely. I mean, that is that is for sure the reaction that she has. And she's she's doing that that constant asking or constantly saying that it that wasn't my fault. That wasn't my fault. She says it all the time. And it, it makes me want to talk about this and ask you how you feel, because uh, when it comes to skating in general, now we are not experts on the world of figure skating and the way that scoring is done. But the sport exists and has two scoring systems. One is technical and one is artistic. Is it fair for Tanya, who definitely had a coach, and we see that in the movie, we know that from the history and the documentary, that she had a coach, a very successful coach, who would have been explaining to her what classical music is. So there's, there's no excuse here for not understanding what is wanted from the judges. Is it fair to not conform to the artistic nature of the sport to not have that part of the sport be a strength and yet expect to be half of a wonderful ice skater and yet be recognized as the best, the overall. I I liken it to this idea of something like a, what we call a one trick pony in a lot of sports, maybe a baseball pitcher who has one pitch, they have a get out pitch, right? And they can throw that fastball and they can get it by anybody, but they're not a great pitcher. They're a really good pitcher, but they're not the best of the best because they don't have a curveball. They don't have a slider. They can't do all of the other things that is are required of a great pitcher. They can do one thing and they can do that one thing better than anybody. So they can throw it 105 miles per hour, right? Say the best fastball that exists, but you ask him to throw a curveball and it is a wild pitch and allows somebody else to, to score a run or something. That's my analogy. And I wondered if you feel that way or if you think the sport is corrupt and the scoring system's dumb and Tanya's, you know, validated. Well, it goes back to what you were mentioning that we are not versed in the world of figure skating in terms of the rules and things like that. But when it comes to your two categories my question would be 
or my response would be to, to ask another question and what does it mean to be the tech not the technical but the um uh what was the other category I forget again remind me artistic artistic artistry some right. sort of art so i would wonder what is being asked in the artistic does it mean what you look like does it mean how graceful you are because I know technical is like, can you hit your jumps? Are you hitting the marks for your program and that kind of thing? I mean, I understand that. But the artistic, does it imply how good you look in your outfit? Does it imply how graceful you are? What we can't, what we do know is that Tanya Harding was an incredible athlete. And so taking your analogy one step further, you can be a great closer with a fastball because you can burn that ball right past a batter. However, you can't be a great all-around pitcher or last more than one inning if that's the only pitch you have. And if you're only if you're limited by one thing and your sport demands more, then you either need to conform to those demands and risk losing some of that other other piece, other talent because the sport asks more of you. And in that regard, I felt like, yeah, she misses the mark because if the attitude of Tanya Harding is I refuse to be something that I'm not. That's a legitimate response, and I get that. But when you're competing in a sport that asks that legally, that asks that officially, that says we need you to do these things, you have to, as much as you can, conform to that. The problem I have is the fact that she may have not have had the means to do so. I mean, she grew up poor. She grew up without a lot of opportunities outside of her mom apparently sacrificing everything because that's what a mother does according to Alice and Jane's portrayal of a character of her character but at some point if the sport's not going to change for you then you have to change for the sport or just get out and find something else um I know that's probably difficult when you've done something your whole life but at the same time I can't feel sorry for someone who doesn't want to or who, who refuses to try to conform to that. Yeah, that, that was my read on it too, is that I, I don't, at least the movie doesn't give me any idea that she tries to find a middle ground. And and I'm all for people pushing the boundaries of sport. I mean, if, if we're talking golf, you're saying, well, I'm sorry, you can't play golf because you wear bright colored pants. Like there's a, there's a point where the the outside kind of aspects of that need to be lessened in favor of letting everybody participate and letting the talent speak for itself. But if part of that talent is the graceful aspect of the sport and you don't have that or don't work on that, don't want to, and you, and what the film shows us is a person who is resistant to that. To She just expects them to ignore it. Not someone who tries and fails. Now we do see the costuming and I completely understand that part. If she's simply getting docked for costumes that's wrong, and that's yeah. an indictment of the sport, and that needs to change. But I, I guess I didn't feel like the movie did a good job of giving me enough info in that regard to feel empathy for her, because instead I felt a little bit like she was a villain. Mm. Um, and, and also in the way that she treats Nancy. She says at one point, she's whining in one of her interviews, and she says, Nancy gets hit one time, and the world throws a fit. But for me, it was a daily occurrence. I don't think that she gets it. <laughs> like, I don't think she understands anybody else's suffering other than her own. 
And that was hard for me. It made it hard to empathize with her. Um, she claims in the movie that Nancy is a party animal and not a princess. I kind of want to know, like, is, is that a figment of her imagination or, or what? Because we, we don't see any of this from Nancy. The only thing we see from Nancy in the movie, we don't see anything in the movie in the price of gold, which is what it is, by the way, you were right. Nancy is portrayed in a, in so much more of a, of a thorough light. We see a lot more about Nancy. Nancy's parents were blue collar as well. But what I see the difference in those two, and I know Tanya Harding movie, I Tanya is about Tanya, but you cannot separate these two things. And to me, I, I have to, and, and I see Nancy Kerrigan who this thing happens to her out of her control. She's victimized. And she goes through the most intense six weeks of training that almost anybody has ever had. She's like one of the hardest training regimens that she can in four weeks. She's off the ice. She only gets two weeks of practice time before the Olympics. And she comes back from it. She, she goes, you know what? It happened. It sucked. I'm putting it behind me and I'm going to go get my, I'm going to go and I'm going to drive toward my desire and my dream. And she goes and she achieves things. And to this day, she doesn't talk about, she won't talk about this. She won't focus on this. She just keeps going with her life. And so I see that, you know, compared to the way that Tanya Harding just can't let go of it. Mm -hmm. And it makes her just, gosh, man, I don't know. I just, it's really hard for me to enjoy watching her because I I don't know what to feel for her at all. Yeah. You made a great point. The fact is that Tanya's life is defined by that moment. And she shouldn't she shouldn't let it. Tanya's life should be defined by the fact that she was an amazing figure skater and that she landed the triple axel, first woman to ever do that. And on the other hand of that, other end of that, you have Nancy Kerrigan who won silver, and she never talks about that incident. The moment that define that should define Nancy Kerrigan's life from a news cycle perspective is that moment the why 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 moment and then her incredible comeback but she doesn't let it she's moved on with her life she doesn't talk about it that's not her world her world is who she is right now which i have no idea and she's not been in the spotlight for years tanya harding there's a reason why this event and why this movie was called i tanya not i nancy because nancy's life was not as interesting from a from a news point of view, one of my favorite moments in the movie was at the very end where Tanya was talking, you know, in the interview section of it, she was talking to, uh, to us and she said throughout this whole thing, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously she goes, I was made the victim. The news cycle made me the victim and you made me the victim as if she was talking to us, the audience that was, that's watching this. And, or and you guys made me the villain. And the way she was talking about that indicated that she felt like she was owed something. Like all this was not her fault. And that's what I'm taking away from this whole thing is that I don't think she ever owns up to the fact of what went down. Not just the incident, but everything leading up to that. It was always blaming her mom. It was always blaming Jeff. It was never her fault. And that really bothers me because that reminds me of my five-year-old who thinks that nothing is ever his fault. He will throw something on the floor 
And then he will say, I didn't do that right in front of us. And I'm like, you clearly did that. (laughs) Why are you lying to me? And it's frustrating to me as a parent. So watching this, I'm going, that's frustrating to me as an audience member because I want to be on your side, Tanya. I mean, if you if if you didn't do this, if you were completely oblivious to this, then you need to show me some kind of resolution. Show me some kind of redemption. Show me some kind of opportunity where you're like, you know what? This was awful. I never wanted anything like this to happen to Nancy. I mean, we are competitors and we respect each other. And this this was not my fault, but I should have said something from the very beginning once I found out. And I think she said something like that in her press conference. But it didn't come across that way. It came across like what she was doing, reading a line of dialogue or reading a press clipping or reading a speech. And, and it frustrated me. Maybe it was supposed to, but I remember coming away from that going, how am I supposed to even feel like you're a victim when all you're doing is saying you are someone who says they're a victim is not (laughs) someone who's not the victim is one who doesn't try to call attention to it or someone who is a victim is the opposite of that. Anyway, I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I wrote that down because that's a that's a big quote that stuck out to me as well. Um, she says, I thought being famous would be fun. I was loved for a minute. Then I was hated. Then I was just a punchline. It was like being abused all over again, but by you, all of you. You're all my attackers too. And that is a harsh harsh accusation to make. And I, I was not a fan of it. And and I I almost, I can tell you, I wouldn't, while I was watching this as a viewer, I almost took it personal, (laughs) you know, like there is some truth to this. And that's what the film is trying to say is that the American desire for this news, news cycle. And we, we, we created this villain of Tanya Harding because we wanted it to exist. Perhaps there is some truth to that. But I love what the point you made was, is that you have to be forthcoming. If you truly were not involved in this and you come out and you say, I am not involved of this. This was not me. I separate myself from all of this. That is, and then the facts come out and the, and the, the, the evidence is there. Then you don't become the villain. But because of the way she handled herself, she made it easy for her to become the target and the face of this attack because to be honest before i watched this movie again or for the first time when it came out last fall i thought that tanya did the attack like it i actually was reminded in the film that oh yeah tanya didn't hit nancy but in my mind that's how i remember it and that's what the point of the movie is trying to get at is that a lot of us do remember it as tanya being the one that did the attack because we didn't take the time to figure it out. We didn't care. And again, I think a lot of that is because of Tanya's personality. And there is a responsibility to some extent. I think it's a joint responsibility. And the film, to me, tries to put all the blame on the on the people while at the same time making fun of its characters. And that doesn't work for me. Like that, you can't do... I feel like it wants to have its cake and eat it too. Right. You I, know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely do. And that's, that's where I get frustrated the most is... There are these there are these ping pong matches of of tone that we get throughout the movie where we have hilarious lines of dialogue and over the top Fargo esque characters, and then we get a tonal shift into a okay now it's time to be serious, 
And then we shift back to, <laughs> let's laugh at these guys. And then it's like, okay, let's be serious again. So by the time we get to her verdict and we hear her crying, I'm like, so? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that whole scene was played up for dramatic effect. But at that point, I'm like, uh, you lost me. I, 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 I'm, I'm really I'm, – I'm not even feeling any kind of empathy for you at all. And it's not because I hate you. It's not because I think your character has – been portrayed as a villain or as someone who should be who should be punished it's like i don't know what i should feel. i don't know that i should feel sorry for you this is different from someone who we get to a place where we feel like you're the victim and and you you've been wrongly accused and you get this sentence and you're like yeah no no don't make her leave the sport no at the end of the movie this verdict is saying no well okay good i'm sorry stop complaining stop whining own up to your stuff, girl, which is what really I think the movie is <laughs> unintentionally telling me to do is don't feel sorry for her. We're showing that she can't own up to anything and that it's it's never her fault. And so if that's what was happening, man, that was a great effective thing because I didn't because I left that scene going, yep, get her out because, you know, that's completely that's completely right in line with who she is. Right, exactly. And I felt the same way, but I can guarantee you that's not what they were trying to get at. They were trying to show us that Tanya is unfairly being banned, that we're we're taking away the one thing that matters to this person's life. And she's grown up and she's had such a hard time getting there. And yet here we are being the villains by taking this away from her. I, I'm almost positive that had to be the message from the film, but that's not how I felt. Mm -hmm. I felt like you did. I was like, if I'm the judge, I'm like, shut up. Yes, yes, shut up, please. You've done this. You know, you're guilty. Go away. Like, why would we want you in the sport? Of course we're going to ban you. Like, like that's that's the least. You didn't have to go to prison. <laughs> like, okay, you know, and maybe if she'd cooperated more, maybe if she'd have separated herself from these these people, Jeff, and the other the other people that were involved, then – she wouldn't have had to deal with this, but she she couldn't make that. It's just it's a it's a crazy story, um, and 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 it's it's portrayed in such a weird way. Oh, man, it's so strange. Just that last third, the whole last third of the movie concentrates on the act, and then the the aftermath of the attack, and that's where I was so confused at the lack of Nancy Kerrigan, like being involved in it. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna spend a third of the movie to kind of like stop being fast paced with fun music and abuse constantly and like go to like procedural drama, then show me some of Nancy's like recovery and what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like show me a real victim, frankly, yeah. and how she manages to get past this. Um, soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. This soundtrack is awesome. I mean, it was on point. It was. Yeah. And, and I think what it does with that Southern rock, uh, from the sixties and seventies, um, I think what it did for me was it put us in a in a place of who Tanya was. I mean, she came from a a southern town. She was kind of just this not good old girl, but it really helped set the tone for what kind of person she was and how she grew up. And and having that southern rock feel to it was was really great, entertaining as well, but definitely helped set the tone for the type of person that that they were portraying her to be. Yeah, and then the acting so I don't think we can talk about this without talking about the acting. We have um, – I don't remember who's up for the, the Oscars because now I'm so focused on the Feeler's Choice Awards. Uh, but we have Allison Janney who's been recognized several times. You're a fan from the West Wing, yes. which I haven't watched yet. 
Um, totally different character, I can uh, assume. And <laughs> and then I'll let you talk about that. And then we have Margot Robbie, who we both agree is wonderful and in this role. I mean, in doing what they ask of her, she's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, she's phenomenal. I, I can't argue that. And frankly, the forgotten person in this movie to me is Sebastian Stan. I, I think he's a, he's just a knockout. I think he's wonderful in this movie. His mustache alone should have an Oscar nomination. <laughs> uh, but, it, but when you like compare his performance in something like The Winter Soldier – you know, where he does so much brooding and non-talking to this role. I just, I thought he made that character so real and so rich for me. Uh, and and just, oh man, I loved him. But go ahead. What did you, well, you think? Well, that, that triplet of, of actors uh, were really what I would consider a personification of the people that they were portraying. And as we've talked about, there's a sense of embellishment that, that has taken place over the course of the movie. Allison Janney stands out to me. I adore her because she's just a fantastic actress. Getting to see her for the first time in in the West Wing, she's a strong female character there. I, I think each movie that I've seen her in, each performance, she's always a strong female character. This is the first time that I've seen her be completely awful. Not in her performance, but in just how she's portraying this person. I mean, she is unrelenting. There's a scene that was almost my connecting point where Tanya's she was confronted by one of the judges saying, We're looking for someone with a family, you know, a stable family background, you know, having that kind of persona. And she goes, What if I don't have that? And the next scene is her hooking up at the diner with her mom. And the first thing her mom says was, I hope you don't think I'm going to serve you. <laughs> and they sit down. And her mom is just completely unapologetic about anything. And you're thinking, oh, this is where Tanya gets her I'm not going to apologize for anything attitude. This is the first time I really kind of realized, okay, now I'm getting like mother, like daughter. Because by the very end of the conversation, she takes off and her mom goes, uh, spill milk, baby. And she's sitting there with that cigarette in her hand and it's like – Man, there is just no sympathy whatsoever between these two people. And I, and I and I thought that Janie as as her mom was just completely immersive in terms of the attitude that she was portraying. Again, I don't know how her mom was, but if you were going to personify based on interviews and secondhand firsthand knowledge, uh this was this is perfect. And and Margot Robbie does a perfect uh, addition as a daughter to Alice and Janie's mom. I think they were great together. So that actually led me to one of my questions I forgot to ask earlier. And that was with, when it comes to Alice and Janie's portrayal of the mom, at one point she says, I gave up everything for you and your skating career, which is true in some ways, like financially, like this was the priority. Do you feel that, how do you feel about that? <laughs> so is that love? Is there a, some way in which this is love to give up all of this, to make all of this time and effort while simultaneously treating her like trash and forcing her to you know pee on herself and all of these things? This was a, a hard thing for me to watch because I need to see more about her mom's motivation. If you're giving up all this so that your daughter can have all these things, on the surface, that sounds like 
love. But when you compromise that with the abuse that she had, I'm asking myself, what's your problem? What do you want from her? I mean, if you want her to be the best, what are you getting from this? What are you gaining from it? Is it because you had a crappy childhood growing up? Because apparently she did. That conversation in the diner sort of alluded to it, the fact that she had a crappy mom and her mom treated her like this. So I'm thinking if it's love, then it's a weird interpretation of love. Love in that it's more tough love than anything else and that my job as a mom is to give you everything that I feel like I can and not expect anything in return but also, I'm going to be bitter about that because I don't deserve it, yet I want that. And in a lot of ways, her mom is more complex than she is as a character. And I kind of want to hear more from her. I kind of want to understand her story because I think that informs, I think that informs what, what Tanya's like. And it, it would allow me to understand her mom's perspective a lot more. It just it felt incomplete to me. To answer your question, no, I think that's crappy. I think I don't think that's love. I think that's more of abuse than anything else because we never know if Tanya said, I don't want to do this anymore. And if she did, we would expect, based on the portrayal of Alice and Janie as her mom, she'd say, no, I've put too much into this. Tanya's an investment at this point. She's not a... Self-serving. Yeah. It's self-serving. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what the end game is. What's the self-serving end game for her mom at this point? We never know what that is. Yeah, the only sense we get, I think, is that it's fame and, and fortune. I mean, which is what everybody probably wants, like, to get out of the waitress job. She talks about being a waitress, and, you know, she's very disappointed when Tanya doesn't win. So the only way and, – and there is a an explanation in there from Tanya about how, like, the only way you get anything is to be the star, the endorsements and all of that. Um, and so I think, in a way, that's probably what her – but ultimately, we don't know because it doesn't – give us that it just shows us her abusive nature and um yeah so i found that interesting as well um you know we can take away a lot from this because of of the abuse and what we see constantly you know don't hit people <laughs> don't uh don't abuse them with your words treat them like human beings um care for them all that good stuff words matter there's a lot of like verbal abuse in this just all over the place and i think not having encouraging words for kids especially young kids and athlete athletic competition and things like that, or, or school competition, whatever it may be, um, is very important. Um, so encouragement is, is a good thing. Also finish and high then, school. <laughs> yeah. Finish high school and, and the company, the company you keep matters. Yeah. So, you know, if you, you surround yourself with these type of people and you're continually surprised by the result when you go back to that group, at some point it does become on you as an adult. And at some point we have to be responsible for our actions, no matter where our different upbringings brought us. And I know that many people listening, maybe even in this day and age of 2018, America may not agree. And they may think that, you know, they're every, if someone grows up abusive, then it's society's fault and it's those people's fault. And it's never, ever actually on that person. But I just don't agree with that, and I never will. At some level, you have to take responsibility for your actions, and you have to want to change and be different. Sure. Um, and maybe Tanya has. You know, to to the point now, she seems to be very happy from what I've heard in interviews. She runs a, some, I don't know, something to do with like a farm business or some gardening type stuff, and she's very just chill out with her husband, and, and, and I feel like she's finally probably found some peace 
at least. And that I, and that's my hope, you know, for her. Right. Um, maybe she didn't get the the career that she wanted, but she did have her moment in the sun. And I want to end by ending with one final question. Do you think that she was involved? So then the movie never explicitly takes a stance on this. And it's largely all a guess. But I'm just curious what you think based on all of your knowledge of this case. I don't think she was. I think if you're going to attack Nancy, then you might as well attack Oksana Bayul and other other figure skaters as well. Because if the point was to get rid of the competition, she had other skaters that were equally as talented as Nancy Kerrigan. Of course, Nancy was the only other U.S. figure skater. But I'd like to believe, based on this portrayal, and even on things that I've, I've read and, and watched, that at the very least, she was... I think what the film got right was that she was probably aware of the death threats and the potential letters, but not the attack. Because I don't think... I don't I don't see her as someone who goes to that extreme to say, hey, we need to we need to take extreme measures. And I think that's what the film really was probably the most, at least attitude wise, accurate in in terms of who she was, that she would not sink to that level of saying I will do anything to win. No, because she she was she seemed like a woman who said, I'm going to base it on my talent, not on limiting my competition. And I think. Of course, who's who's thinking in their right mind when they're potentially talking about, you know, taking a taking a crowbar or something to someone's knees? But no, I, I don't think she was. I think if anything, she was maybe involved in the death threats and things to kind of make it psychological. But as far as like an actual physical attack, I think that was Jeff and his cronies that were that were a part of that. Well, I think that much like you, I'm I'm convinced that she was knowledgeable and complicit in some form of understanding that there was going to be something done to Nancy that would affect her and give Tanya an edge, whether it was psychological or otherwise. I am wont to believe that she probably did know, I think, a little more, or she probably had some idea that you know, there were other steps going to be taken. I don't doubt that she may have felt afraid to come forward and afraid to step up against that or that she may not have had any power to do so. I mean, for all we know, she may have known these things were somewhat going to happen and she may have stood up and said, no, don't do that. And they just ignored her. And it is what it is. And so I could absolutely see her the way she's portrayed as a person who would do that and then still fall back in the end to this staunch you know, determination that she was not involved in any way because she doesn't want that to be how she's remembered. So that's kind of where I land. I mean, I think that she definitely was involved in some way. Um, and I think that her punishment's probably fair. All right. Connecting points. Time for that moment where we talk about the one thing that we connected most with in the film. Sadly, with this being a film that's supposed to be, I guess, evoking a lot of empathy from us, we didn't have a ton of these. <laughs> Um, but I'll start. Okay. So mine is that moment, that that bright shining moment of the Olympics when she does the triple axel. Although it wasn't the Olympics, I guess the nationals, nationals or yeah, 
So in that brief period, not only does the film get it right, the way that this scene is filmed, I think, is wonderful. It, it really captures everything perfectly. We get some slow motion. We get to see the lights. We really focus on Tanya's face. It's one of the only times we see a smile, a genuine feeling of happiness. And it's like her, she's reached that highest point in her own sport, the pinnacle. And I think she's proud of herself. Right then, right there, you pause it, and she is content. And she feels confident and successful. Um, after that, it, it all falls apart. But when she's on the ice, when she's doing that, that uh, jump, it captures an athlete who is performing their sport at the top of their ability with no distractions. And so it really highlights to me the tragedy of the before and the after of this moment and why we hardly can't remember it for what it is as this incredible act. And it it's sad. You know, this was an incredible, amazing achievement. It was unparalleled in her sport. She is truly a world-class athlete. I mean, she was super talented and yet like many athletes that we've have now in baseball you can't remember this triple axle without an asterisk that has nothing to necessarily do with it she made that jump it was awesome but we can't remember just that jump we always will remember the rest of her story and she says to jeff actually she and jeff both say in the film at one point they're being interviewed after this and they simultaneously say, after the triple, everything changed. And it's sad, and it makes me realize that success has a way of bringing challenge with it. And if you're not prepared for that, you can struggle. And you know we see it a lot with rookies in the NFL, rookies in the NBA. These sports have to work hard to provide mentorship and programs to bring these kids along because they get brought into these professional environments where there's so much expected of them and they're lauded with this attention that they can't handle and, and aren't prepared to understand what to do with and money and fame and all of these things. And so many of them fall apart, waste it, throw it all away. I mean, how many stories do we have about athletes who are broke? you know, and, and go on to live the rest of their lives in poverty. And it's, it's terrible. And then it's a challenge and Tanya wasn't pre prepared for that. And so that is, it's very tragic and it, and it's just all framed around that amazing act. And when you take it apart and you look at her on the screen in the middle of that jump, that's when I feel the most empathy for her because she did it. And then no one cares. Well, I care. And I think that the seven other women in history who have landed that jump care. Uh, she was the first. And she's only one of two Americans who have landed the jump. Uh, and the second one, I forget her name, but she actually did it this last year, I think, at Nationals. So this is a real – this is a big deal. I mean the triple axle is a, is a tough maneuver. The fact that it's only been done by just over half a dozen women around the world – and the only other American to have done it has been just recently. Um, I'll be curious at, at these uh, at these Olympics if it's going to be something that will be attempted because I don't know that it's ever been done. I know it's I don't think it's been done by an American at the Olympics, so that'll be something interesting if it's actually 
done. So great connecting point. Um, for me, I the the conversation with 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 Tanya and her mom at the diner was a front runner until the conversation with Jeff and Sean after the attack, and he finds out that Sean actually sent the death threats to Tanya as a means to sort of get him more famous. Uh, this is the moment that I think Sean kind of stood out to me as a hilarious character, not as a person, but as a hilarious character. I mean, the way in which he portrays this guy as a, the hard copy uh, guy calls him a boob, which is what he is, but just how over the top, how self-important he feels like he is, the way he explains himself. He, he is the epitome of what I think the filmmakers are saying. We're going to make some fun happen from this i mean he's a character that i think really epitomizes that but the scene is really a summation of how i felt about the entire movie it's what made it both entertaining and ridiculous and sad all at the same time which in some ways was (laughs) made me smile but in a lot of ways just made me shake my head and go what are you doing what are you doing and i'm saying this to the filmmakers not to sean because i know jeff's saying that for me to sean like what what's going on here and i think the way that jeff feels about sean in this moment is the way that i feel about the movie and the filmmakers in this moment of like what in the world this embellishment this sense of like too muchness i guess you could say and the scene ends with jeff saying the word that i latched onto as my one more takeaway he walks out of the house and looks at Sean and goes, unbelievable. And I'm like, I second that, Jeff. I second that. This whole thing is unbelievable. And I wanted to walk away. I just wanted to say, can I just turn this off? Because I don't even know what I'm watching anymore. But at the same time, I look at that scene and I go, that's some good entertainment right there. And the parts of it that sort of supported that scene, not just as far as like narrative, but as far as tone, really kind of made me go, okay, yeah, I can get behind this as an entertaining piece of fiction. I wish that it weren't because that really kind of taints my viewpoint of it. But I think that this moment right here, because of the way it made me feel and maybe kind of confirm how I felt about the movie as a whole, that's why it was my connecting point. That's good, man. I like that. That's definitely not something I would have expected. And so it's pretty cool when you can find a lot of emotional value in something so seemingly simple, right? And <laughs> and non-prioritized, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but no, I like it. And, and I actually love Sean's character. I thought, I agreed. I thought he was handled in a way, and it's probably because he had so little screen time is really what a lot of that amounts to is that, you know, we it's okay for him to be over the top and kind of crazy like that because we don't have to deal with an hour and a half of him. Yeah. You know, we get these little pieces of him and we're like, yeah, he's wild. Yeah, right. The, the one scene where he's like, he tells Jeff, I'm going to, I'm going to need some more money. Uh, you know, I, my guys, I mean, they're, they, they've got, they've got per diem or they got their whole thing. And, and just, just like, I, it was just supposed to be letters. Why do you need that? He's like, I, you know, the wheels have been set in motion. I can't really stop them. And it's like, how do you even take this guy seriously? And why did you give yeah. him a grand? You idiot. Why did right. you give him a thousand dollars? And it's just yeah, hilarious. This... It's so funny. <laughs> and, Tom, yeah, and he does a great job does. with that. Performance he really too. does. He really does. does. Well, man, this has been fun. Um, you know, we're not always going to love the movies we talk about when we choose to do these in theater picks, ones like this that are newer and we're not going back and we're specifically choosing them. 
Um, so it's kind of fun and, and it's a challenge and a unique experience. Where can people continue this conversation with you if they want to talk to you about Itania or gosh, any of the myriad of stuff we've talked about this episode? Yeah, you can find me at Shoeless Patch. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Instagram. Be sure to at me so I can join that conversation with you. Um, I'm best found when you tag me in something so that I can uh, engage in those conversations. And I'd love to talk more about Itania or anything that we've we've covered up to this point. Uh, you can also find me kind of bouncing around the Facebook group here and there. I post our Wednesday poll question most of the time, but I'm also kind of trudging through it and finding other stuff that's going on. I love reading the posts that a lot of our regular listeners are contributing to. It's really cool. You mentioned earlier the organic kind of growth that the Facebook group has has taken on over the last several months, and I've really seen that a lot. I love our best week ever that that Jacob posts and our what are we watching tonight that kind of stuff this is just really cool stuff because we get to see the gamut of what our listeners are are into and it creates great conversation it creates a sense of understanding each other more and so if you're not a part of the Facebook group feel free to join that's where really all the magic and discussion happens for the most part um, in the next week we're gonna finish off our two-week Love for the Olympics by talking about one of my favorite biopics, Miracle, that chronicles the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team and their triumph over the Russians at the time. Not a spoiler because you should know about that, at least from history, if not from the movie. So look forward to talking about that with you next week, Aaron. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize it wasn't for the gold medal. I got all excited and then I learned after the fact that we didn't even win the stupid gold. Uh, like we just beat Russia. No, 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 no. We won the gold. That game was for that was the essentially oh, that's the, what the I semifinal. Mean. Yeah, we didn't play the Russians for I mean. the gold. We did. Yeah, we beat it's them. like kind of boring. No. Beating them in the prelims in or whatever. semifinals. I know, I know, I know. Okay, <laughs> I'm excited to see it. I've never seen it, and I'm actually pretty pretty jazzed. I'll probably find myself. I tend to do this with movies. I tend to go on a run. And like do kind of groups like I started the MI movies and watched through them and uh, I could really see myself just picking out a whole bunch of Winter Olympic movies and I watch them through I was say some of them was, in addition. Yeah, I was gonna say there's no Miracle two or three. I mean it's it's not a franchise. So, but there's Mighty Ducks one, two, and three. True, true, and I would not be opposed. And there's to using... the Cutting Edge. I have not seen the Cutting Edge in so long. I don't even know if it's any good anymore well i will plug the retro rewind podcast and say that they put on a really great discussion for it and i would encourage you to watch it and then listen to their episode what was their decision nostalgic you'll have to listen tragic. to the episode if they call it tragic i'm gonna be upset okay well anyway <laughs> listeners if you want to interact with me on social media you can find me all over at aaron l white a-a-r-o-n-e-l-w-h-i-t-e i also tweet from the feeling film twitter account like we mentioned, voting is going on for that donor pick episode in February. You've got till February 10th to go to patreon.com slash film and get in the mix. Patrick, it's been an awesome episode. I enjoy it as always. And until next week, everybody stay positive and keep feeling film. <laughs>